we only as a species have elevated the job of musician to something where you could get paid to do it in the last less than a hundred years, maybe about a hundred years. Previous to that, you were the jester. You got you got the food last, and it was only if your song was good. You see what I mean? Yeah. So I think like to um, to get too demanding. Oh, I'm owed this. It's like, well, okay, because someone put a copyright law in place, but I don't know. It just yeah. it's like you can really feel entitled, and that gets you in really murky water. I think. I think you just want to put out what you're doing, work hard at it, and hope for the best. Welcome to Creative Vengeance. I'm your host, Anastach, and this is episode number nine. This time, I'm talking with Dave Haas. He's an American singer-songwriter and the first musician on this show. I don't think I ever talked with a professional musician so specific about creativity before. Dave seems very relaxed about the challenges of the music industry, and what he explained about his life as a musician makes sense for many other creative professions as well, I guess. If you're not familiar with Dave's music, check out the show notes on creativevengeance.com. I put some of his videos there, and of course, you can find his music on every music platform out there. If you're a first-time listener of the show, you probably got here because of Dave Haas. If you like this episode, you might want to check out the episode with Ivan Cash. He's perhaps most interesting to you if you got here because of Dave. Yeah, Dave Haas played at a church, just a five-minute walk away from my apartment. And we met before his show while Norse Code was still doing the sound check. So you'll sometimes hear their beautiful music in the background throughout this episode. You can find the podcast on social media and creativevengeance.com. If you like it, please tell a friend about it, share it on social media, subscribe on Apple or Spotify and leave a rating or review. Thanks so much for listening. Here's Dave Haas. Today is February 1st, 2020. We're in Berlin, Kreuzberg, in a church. Mm -hmm. And a lot of punk bands were playing in churches in the GDR when Germany was separated. Oh, yeah? Didn't know that? I didn't. There's, uh, yeah, I think they didn't have anywhere to play. And so the church let them play shows in yeah, churches like this, I guess. I mean, this is Western Germany, but... That makes sense. When we were kids um, playing in hardcore bands, we often would convince people uh, who ran churches that you know to have punk shows in their in their basements and things. So I guess there it was probably happening all over the world. As, yeah, maybe as punk rock was. Uh, so you're used to playing in churches, I guess, because you played shows in churches before, right? Ah, uh, sort of. I mean, I was raised in the church, so I think that that had a that's maybe more of the familiarity than than so your parents were religious and you yeah. were raised in church what does that mean you were oh that means that we um we spent a lot of time at the church and we went to a christian school and um and you know there was bible study and yeah you know the, the our community was the community i was a part of a lot of it was tied to the church and church goings on so Cool. Yeah, that's what that's what they sort of say is yeah. you're raised in the church. Okay. Yeah. So tonight there's probably going to be a couple of hundred people, maybe I don't know, the 
place is smaller than I thought. Mm -hmm. So should be about um, 500. 500, okay. Yeah. yeah, I'm really bad at guessing. <laughs> What kind of venues do you like to play most? I think that's where I'm the most comfortable. Um, it's 500. You know, you have enough of a crowd to deliver almost any kind of show. A quiet show, a loud rock show. And um, once you get past there, it starts to be... Um, there's people that are coming for more social reasons often. And I think that, um, which is cool, you know, like I welcome anybody to the show, but it's harder to, um, deliver a quiet show like this over five or 600 people. Yeah. Um, usually you have to sort of deal with the bar and the din that comes off of the bar with a rock and roll show though. It's louder and there's, there's more, um, to mask all the conversation That yeah, often happens these days, but uh, I'm usually comfortable around that that number. Yeah, okay. But you know, I, to be honest, it's I'm lucky to get to play in front of anybody. You know, it's to me that's kind of the way I look at it. Is um, try to just get comfortable in whatever room you're in because in in each city there's a different uh, amount of people that live there and a different amount of people that might be into what we're doing. And, you know, sometimes that's bigger and sometimes that's smaller. So you've been a roadie before, right? So I have been a roadie before. Yeah. yeah. So does that help to get into playing music in front of people or like, uh, it did a long time ago. I haven't been a roadie since, um, 2003. So it did help, um, get over the initial fears that I had before I was roading. And then as I was working across the world, you know, with the bouncing souls and sick of it all and stuff and seeing the different sizes and different kinds of venues and the different ways that they went about doing their show, it, it ended up adding a lot of, um, experience just through them on, on how, how to do it. Mm. You know, so. Because I heard you say that on another podcast, I guess that somehow it helps to get in, to the industry when you know people or i mean industry is probably the wrong word that's what we use when we talk about design and agencies and stuff but yeah. for my profession it uh, it is very helpful if you know people and people like you and people hire you because yeah yeah that, it, I, that's true i think that um it was more by accident that i became a roadie though i, I worked for a band that uh, came out of Philadelphia called Kid Dynamite, and they were doing pretty well, and they just happened to go on tour with Sick of It All and happened to go on tour with the Bouncing Souls and stuff like that. So I got to know those people, and when that band broke up, those other larger bands asked me to work for them, and so I just ended up in that situation. I didn't set out to work for them in order to make the, the connections, but then, um, but then it did prove helpful. Like A lot of those people in those bands were really encouraging. They were like, oh, you should write songs. You should go do this on your own. Like, you know, don't keep roadying. Start your band. And and so I did. Mm -hmm. and, and then when we needed shows and tours and advice and things like that, um, it just made sense to call the people that I know that do it. And they just yeah. happened to be in uh, in bands that already had followings and stuff. So I saw you first in Cologne. That was about, I don't know, eight or nine years ago. You were playing just with an acoustic guitar together. You were on tour with Tom Gable, I guess. Okay. And remember that show in Cologne? Was it was a small? Yeah, the Gabaldonine. Yeah, yeah. I th exactly. Yeah. Yeah. And um, I think uh, you were 
the first guy that comes from a punk background that I've seen just with an acoustic guitar. Mm -hmm. And when I was at that show, I thought, oh, that's cool because he's just traveling with his guitar so he can probably make a living. Whereas a lot of punk bands that I know, they did not do that full time. So, right. And I thought it's, it's really cool that you might be able to do that full time. And at some point you became a full time musician. It was pretty... Well... Again, it wasn't really by design. I was in The Loved Ones, and we were going pretty uh, intensely. We were touring a lot, making records, and it was a financial strain. I had a construction business that I ran with a partner um, that kept my household at the time <clears throat> and my lifestyle afloat. And then the band was growing, and we were making a little bit of money, but not enough to live um, the way other people who were around 30 years old lived. And so that was a big stressor. And right around this, at the same time, 2008, 2009, um, the economy uh, collapsed in, in America. And um, the construction company that I had was uh, remodeling and light commercial. And most of those kinds of jobs dried up when funding dried up, you know, for, you know, bad loans and things like that. And at the same time, it became really difficult to tour. Uh, people just didn't have extra money to go see rock and roll bands. And so... Um, I got offered to do a tour actually with Matt, um, who's opening for us, Northcote. He was just starting out too, and I got offered a tour in uh, Canada. So it was like, oh, if you come up and do this, uh, I can get you about two or 300 bucks a day. And at that time, that's what I was making as a carpenter if I was going to go look for work. You know, when you own the business, you can make more money. But at that point, I just was like, well, I, there's not much carpentry work. Everyone's kind of uh, dried up. And I can go make money with this guitar. I'll try it. And didn't really have any that many intentions to make a solo record. I had some songs that weren't fitting the loved ones. But sort of one thing led to another. Um, in 2009, I tried it a little bit. I guess it, maybe it was 2010. Um, but 2009 is when the crash really started to affect my business and stuff. Um, so it was 2010 I started to do that touring and put the songs together and then really kind of launched a solo career in 2011 by putting out Resolutions, my first record. Yeah. Um, so there was a little bit of an incubation period around 2009 or 10, but uh, I started going in 2011 and I haven't picked up a hammer since uh, in order nice. to make money. So yeah, it's been, uh, it's been nice, but I do think if I had started with a band at that time, I wouldn't have been able to make a living. Yeah. yeah. And you know, inevitably as you make more records and have more of a creative vision for what you're doing, you start bringing bands and, you know, I travel almost exclusively now with my brother, wherever I go, and we do duo or trio or, um, sometimes we bring the full band when we're, when we're wanting to do the full rock show. So, you know, as a solo artist, though, I think it does give you a certain freedom to deliver the show how you want. And, and the, there's sort of, there's a precedent set with guys like, you know, Tom Waits or Bruce Springsteen or Tom Petty that sometimes they come by themselves, sometimes they come with a band. And it's, um, I think that has, has helped me um, be able to aesthetically make decisions instead of just entirely based on well, how much money can you make, you know, like yeah. um, sometimes you want to present the show you want to present mm -hmm. and you don't need to make as much money or you, you're okay not making as much money. Yeah. So a friend of mine from San Francisco, he was in band since high school, I guess. And around, yeah, 2008, when the financial crisis hit, I realized that a lot of 
bands are going on tour again that I haven't seen in many years. Yeah. And so, for example, the Swing Others, I asked my friend, so how does it come that these guys are touring again? And he told me that some of the guys uh, said, yeah, Fat Mike is just sending us on tour so we can make a living because our regular jobs are gone. Oh, wow. Yeah, I don't know anything about that. Um, to, for me, the 2008 was a really busy year for the loved ones. We put out our, our second record that year and toured the whole year. So that was still, we were still going strong. It was 2009 where things started to get yeah, okay. really hairy. And by the end of that year, we did our last giant American tour. By that point, Gaslight Anthem had broken and we opened for them at the end of 2009. And I was starting to do other stuff and realizing that maybe I should go play solo. And so I, I put my feet in the water in 2010. Mm. But yeah, but I don't know. I don't know how that all works. I mean, as far as those bands you were talking about, I'm not sure what they're their story maybe i just remember the story wrong but it's, no, uh, i thought I, I, it, it was interesting be. that uh yeah you go touring you leave i think a lot of th these guys had kids back then mm. and they had to leave their families just to tour for as many days as they can and a lot of times in europe i guess where they mm. probably had a bigger audience also yeah i don't i'm not sure i mean i think uh it would seem peculiar to me that you would go out on tour as a smaller or mid mid level band, I, I can't imagine going out on tour to make a living. Maybe um, it was just that he put them on Warp Tour or something. Yeah, I don't know. Yeah. I'm not sure. It's kind of a world that I'm not. <laughs> I'm only like uh, I'm like aware of it, but I don't yeah. know exactly what's going on. Also, at that show, the first time I saw you, like eight or nine years ago, you told uh, I don't know if that was in between all the songs, but about a lot of the songs that you played that night, you told the story behind those lyrics. And oh yeah. I, I really liked your music before, but after I knew all the stories behind the songs, they were so much more powerful to me. So oh, cool. That was, Maybe uh, I should do that more. <laughs> yeah. The other shows that I saw you sometimes said something about the background of the stories, but yeah, it was interesting. It was a very small um, audience, so felt kind of private so maybe yeah that i remember that show being a fun one i don't remember how many people were there i kind of it all blurs together but i definitely feel like now in cologne we we can do our own thing and and usually you know fill a, a mid-sized room or whatever and and have we have like a long track record now with cologne but that was early on that was probably 2012 or something mm. yeah. so how important are the the stories that you tell in a song or when it comes to writing lyrics where did you get your where do you get your inspiration from uh well i mean i just think that if you're doing this uh with any um regularity you want to keep your antennae up and uh there could be conversations you know as you walk past a bus stop or um you hear stories that your friends or or siblings or fa a family tell you and You want to just keep uh, the storyteller or, um, you know, the inspiration antennae ready. You know, you want to keep your uh, line in the water and hopefully a fish will bite and you have to be ready. Um, so I get it from everywhere, you know. It's, um, the, it sort of depends on the record, I guess. You could get more specific um, or we could get more specific if you wanted by record. But um, usually there's a big batch of songs written and you start to feel through a theme and determine like, okay, I think this is, these are all sort of tying together. 
and then that's how you select the songs for the album or at least that's what I've done um but uh, there's all kinds of songs that haven't ever ma- seen the light of day that are about all kinds of things, you know. Yeah. So does it get easier to to write songs when you write constantly? So yes. The problem I find is, um, you know, touring takes you out of that discipline very easily. Um, it's very hard to stay focused on writing when you're constantly moving. You have to repack your bag, or you know, worry about the bus or whatever. There's always something to do. Um, so writing gets relegated to taking small little inspiration notes or, or putting down melodies or something like that and then coming back and trying to like till that ground, trying to pour water on that seed. So it's a lot of like seed collection on, on tour and in travel. And, uh, and my wife had uh, our twins at the beginning of 2019, so that's also been a difficult, you know, getting our house ready and, and then having twins and... Um, keeping them alive for the first year and all that is uh, it was the priority and, and it'll be soon back to writing you know but it's it's something that is shaky at first you your muscles atrophy for sure so I'm sure the first couple songs I write will be pretty bad and then, <laughs> so <laughs> where, to, where do you usually write your songs and uh, uh, they come everywhere anywhere it's that there's no if there was a, a way to do it that was um, ironclad that always worked I would just do that but the, uh, you'll get an idea in the middle of the night you'll get an idea first thing in the morning but a lot of times what happens um, when it's time to really buckle down and you've collected a lot of those ideas then it's the morning you know the, I think with my kids now it'll be like put them down for the nap and then I'll write for a couple hours um, and uh, you know give it hell for three or four hours maybe in, in the mid-morning after you've had your coffee and your breakfast and you've gotten things off the ground. Um, that's usually... And then you kind of burn out after a couple hours of, of doing yeah. it. Um, that's, usually, that's usually what happens when you're, you've got some of the initial kind of pillars of what you're going to do. Um, but the inspiration strikes anywhere, you know. Yeah. No, I just thought that because, especially with twins, it might be if you write the songs at home really tricky to find, uh, find time, time in between to to well, focus on that yeah it'll just it'll be more more of what i was saying like you, you keeping your antennae up you yeah. know like oh man that's you know there's a, a song i've got cooking up that is related to having them that i've been stewing over for some months now and when i sit down to write it i think i'll, I'll have a pretty good handle on what i want to do with it but um it just came from me talking to them you know, and things like that. So you got to keep yourself ready, you know, in case an idea does strike. The ideas come, and, and this, the stories are everywhere, but it's just being open to them. Yeah. How long does it take to write a song? Oh, man, the good ones come really quick. Um, and Well, I, I guess there's some good ones that take a long time, too, but um, it can take five minutes or ten minutes. It can take months. Mm, yeah, um, because a German musician just told me uh, that sometimes it's half a year and he's just not finding the right words to finalize it and yeah that can happen yeah it can be very difficult to feel like you've completed it um i think in any creative endeavor that's true when is my when is my painting done when is the house complete you know the design of a house or whatever um but i think all those things are are part of the craft of doing your thing knowing when to be done 
another song that I remember from that first show that I saw, Come On Kid, is about a friend that was addicted to drugs, right? Is um, it was, yeah, yes. For, yeah, to put it simply, sure. Yeah, because... Uh, He was struggling with addiction. So is it... But it's not always real-life stories. It's also stories that you make up sometimes in the lyrics. Well, there are also things in that song that aren't necessarily true. Um, or, or necessarily factual, I should say. They're true, but they're not factual. Okay. Um, they're not specific to that person's... Um, so, which I think is... You have to make the best song. You know, you're not a journalist. Um, so... Again, it can come from some... You could be writing about someone and some of the words don't apply. You know, you're telling as good a story as you can. And we all know from a good storyteller at a bar that embellishments are part of it. And, yeah, of course. And it know, changes. <laughs> or, yeah, or downplaying parts that are, you know, not relevant or whatever. I don't know. So I think... Um, but yeah, that, at the heart of that, it's that song's dealing with the struggle of a working class person in the throes of addiction. Mm. I heard the podcast you did with chris Schillard. oh yeah and um he mentioned that his brother also lives in santa barbara and is a guitar teacher yeah and you you said that you wanted to take lessons yeah i and do did you i didn't know okay uh no i uh got pregnant with my wife <laughs> okay no time <laughs> i got my wife pregnant however you want to say it um no i haven't uh it's on my list but i think you know you're already an excellent musician oh, and thank you. um I I don't know. Um, sometimes I have the feeling the earlier records of some bands are better. Not, it's not the case with all the bands, mm -hmm. but sometimes when um, people have time to focus on music and they become really good musicians, it might get uh, harder for the audience to relate to the music because it's kind of yeah. so advanced. So I thought uh, maybe. Um, so aren't you afraid that if you become an even better guitar player musician that uh, no that I don't happen. I think that's um, you can't really base decisions in fear uh, you make mistakes that way I think that if you're a creative type and you want to figure out how to put a thing into the world there's a certain set of skills that that you need to figure out how to mix green let's just say if you're painting And to say, like, oh, all my paintings were really good before I learned how to mix green is ridiculous. And I think that that's a similar thing with music. I mean, I think that what happens maybe sometimes is the industry that drives music pulls people away. Like, we've all heard those records that people write about being a musician or being on tour or uh, struggling with their record label. That, to me, is not very relatable. Yeah. Um, But being able to play more interesting chords or uh, more deliberately on an another instrument, writing on piano, for instance, if guitar is your first instrument, or all those kinds of things, I think, add a dimension to it. I mean, I don't have... Uh, it, I, the, to me, you just don't want to stagnate. Yeah. And so being able to play um, more types of music and have that influence how you approach songwriting and delivering the music is can only be a good thing for me i don't i don't think about it like i think that you just have to put faith in what you're doing that the right audience will find it and that might take years that could take 
you know, we've all heard the story of, of a record coming out and three years later it gets on the radio or, yeah. or 10 years later, you know? So I think you have to kind of do what, what you're going to do and make it as sturdy and, uh, ready for the world as possible and know that you're going to look back on it and frustrated. <laughs> you're going to hear things that you would change. You're going to hear things that don't sound right or could have been better or played, played better. But, uh, you're capturing kind of a moment and then songs can kind of live in a live environment. And that's kind of what we're doing tonight. You know, we're yeah. delivering them in a totally different way than most of them are recorded. Um, so that's exciting. You know, that, that gives people a reason to buy the ticket because it's not what they, anyone can listen to the record at home, but that's not what we're doing. Mm. Yeah. Did I was here a bit earlier and you, uh, took quite some time to do the sound check, make it everything perfect. So you really, take this serious oh yeah yeah i mean this is my job and and it's the job that i wanted as a little kid so when you get that from the universe uh you sort of owe it to yourself and to uh the powers that the forces in the universe and and the people that are buying the tickets to take it seriously i think um you know now with children especially like i want to um impress upon them you know gratitude and and um humbleness and things like that i think like those are important things to strive for especially in today's crazy world um that if you ask or demand something of the universe hey i want to make songs and have people come you know make that be my living like i think you should try to take it seriously like you're going to make mistakes and not every show is going to be perfect but you want to put the work in and and not feel like oh man you want to feel like you did your best mm -hmm. you know i think it's important There was the the second show that I saw uh, from you was also in Cologne, and mm -hmm. um, you played one song from the Devour album. It's called Autism Vaccine Blues. Mm -hmm. When that record came out, I recognized one line that struck me, and the line is, "They said the tumor would shrink before it killed my mom." Mm -hmm. And so my mom died of cancer eight years ago. Oh, I'm sorry, man. And it's a tough thing to go through. Two years after she died, I went to that show of yours uh -huh. and yeah, I was together with my father and my sister and to us it was a special day mm -hmm. because it was my mom's birthday which, oh, wow. which is November the 26th that's my mom's birthday I know Great. because you said that at the show yeah wow and so you were yeah introducing that song and then I learned that this is also a personal story that happened yeah. to you that you uh -huh. mentioned in that song yeah I actually wrote um A record, the first Loved Ones record is all about losing my mom. It's called Keep Your Heart. And, uh, you know, that was that and the EP that was before it, I wrote as I was losing our mom. And, uh, but it works its way back into the songs over the, you know, at different points. Like, that's just such a profound loss, you know. And, and you know, as much as I've kind of, made my peace with it and said like, well, you know, you had 27 years with her and, um, you know, kind of buck up and it's hard. I think especially like having kids now and stuff like to, to be without her is, mm. is tough. You know, it's yeah. tough. it was tough on my sisters as they had all their kids. And, and so, um, you know, being able to get some distance from it, it's been 15, 16 years almost. Okay. Um, it's as profound a loss as you can, Imagine. What know. year was your mother born? She was born in 1954. Okay. So she was three years younger than my mom. Hmm. Yeah. It's tough, man. Cancer is uh, cancer's a tough one. It's, it can get any of us. It 
it's uh you know it's like the grim reaper or something. <laughs> <laughs> yeah that particular song is also i think about dealing with modern life and this one line that mentions the flickering of the screens yeah i guess so how do you deal with social media in yeah private or as a musician Uh, social media, unfortunately, well, I guess I look at it as a, a necessary evil. Um, I've definitely been tempted to, to delete it all and see where, see what happens. Um, because it is anxiety provoking and, um, you know, I think it's built that way so that the companies can keep you on their apps and then, you know, advertise to you and all that stuff. So I understand why. But um, I don't think it's a great thing. I think that there's there's things about the tool that are helpful and certainly doing what I do. Um, there's ways I use it to potentially help um, get the word out. But it is, um, I think we sort of went on one date. The species went on one date with social media and then got married. And that's never a good thing. <laughs> do you take care of the channels personally, or I do? Yeah, okay, I've been. Wow. I've had people advise me to give that up because it does cause anxiety. But no one's signing on to my Twitter to see what someone else yeah, right. is saying. Yeah. It's that's not the point. So, so do you feel pressured by all the numbers and likes? Do you? I mean, I think. I would be lying if I said no, never, but I think you have to get that under control. You have to understand that that's an a ancillary part of what you do. What I do is make up songs and sing them for people. Mm. Social media hopefully feeds that. Um, I mean, I know people with more followers than I do that can't bring 20 people out to yeah. a show. Um, and my goal isn't to get more likes it's to sing more songs yeah it's not about the quantity it's yeah. about the quality right yeah also. and i think that if you spend a lot of time on it then it does become uh it does feel like it's this big deal but when you step away from it your life goes on and it's yeah a, it's it's an it's an alternate reality of mm -hmm. what's actually happening so i think it it's something to be mindful of and something to keep i think if you if you're prone to anxiety it can it can really get exacerbated by social media so you have to keep that in mind as you like go about your mental journey you mm. know your mental health journey i guess that's the way i view it but mm. i think it doesn't matter if you have twenty thousand or twenty million followers uh, the, the, what goes on in the people's right is probably the same and yeah um, i told this on another episode so people might get bored by the story but i was on a production of a um, advertising campaign with brian adams so, oh, wow. not Ryan Adams. <laughs> right. Um, and he posted a photo on Instagram. Mm -hmm. And 10 minutes later, we were sitting in the car and he said, Hey, Arna, look, 1,000 people already liked my post. I thought, You're Brian Adams, of course. <laughs> But still, I mean. Yeah. Uh, right. Yeah. He, he looks at the numbers and he thinks, Wow. And he made up Summer of 69. <laughs> 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 he's, so. he's one of the most successful rock and roll songwriters ever. Yeah, and, and has a perfect voice. <laughs> I mean, <laughs> like, who cares how many people like his photo? But, but I mean, that's what it does to you. It's Narcissa staring into the pool, and uh, you get instant feedback, and it gives you a dopamine rush. And there's all these things that have been studied about it. I don't think there's been enough study for us to be on there as much as we are. It's probably pretty damaging. But um, 
yeah, it's just something you have to get into perspective and not let it eat you alive. I definitely know people who spend so much time on there. And if they spend a fraction of as much time on Twitter as they did writing their songs, they'd have the audience that they were yeah, so okay. uh, desperate to get on Instagram or, or Twitter, mm. you know, so, which I think is, you know, as an irony that I, yeah, I'm not going to be the one to tell them that, but I definitely think that's the case from my perspective, you know, so, but what do I know? I, I just sense. have to go through my day and, and <laughs> do it as well as I can. I remember um, buying records from bands that had, yeah, with a seven inch at 500 copies. And when I compare that to the numbers I see on Spotify, uh, how many people listen to your songs, that's like 500 copies is nothing. And um, for example, We Could Be Kings has, that's the number that they show me, 1.3 million listeners. Mm -hmm. But I assume you don't get that much money from the streaming portals, right? Uh, I don't think so. Uh, but I do think that it's... It's hard to decipher what's coming from where uh, when you get a royalty statement um, at this point because there's a bunch of records, there's a bunch of songs, there's you know Apple and Spotify, and there's there's so many different ways that the that the tiny little numbers come in. Um, but again, like it's like social media; it's the way that the world has gone, and me complaining about it or being frustrated by it is uh, not in my best interest. It's mm. not a battle that I can have that much say in. I mean, I appreciate when a, an artist like Taylor Swift or somebody stands up for artist rights because she has leverage. For me to uh, waste too much time being frustrated by that is, um, it, you know, I, it just burns the wrong kind of fuel. For mm, me, yeah. I, I want to put my energy into something positive. I can't change it. You know, it's, it's like the weather uh, <laughs> for me. You know, it's just it's streaming. Okay, fine. You, you moved to Santa Barbara, so you changed the weather. <laughs> <laughs> That's true. Yeah, yeah. I mean, I guess I could move to, uh, what would it be? What would be my alternative to not have things streaming? I don't know. I, I, I just think like um, being worried about that is, you know, it's not worth my time. Mm. Did the way you listen to music change? compared to oh yeah i love listening to spot that's the thing i mean i use it in my house i i've played so much music for my sons in the last year and you know that would have taken such an enormous amount of time and effort to get a hold of aretha franklin record and nico case record and the misfits and everything that i've played for them i can just think it and play them a song or play them a record so i think it's terrific the technology as a user as a creative well it It could improve, and I think that it will. That's my hope. Um, but but here's the other thing to keep in mind from my perspective. We only, as a species, have elevated the job of musician to something where you could get paid to do it in the last less than 100 years, maybe about 100 years. In uh, pre Previous to that, you were the jester. You got you got the food last and it was only if your song was good. You see what I mean? Yeah. So I think like to, um, to get too demanding, Oh, I'm owed this. It's like, well, okay. Because someone put a copyright law in place, but I don't know. It just, yeah. it's like, you can really, um, feel entitled 
And that gets you in really murky water, I think. I think you just want to put out what you're doing, work hard at it, and hope for the best. I don't really know any other way. There's strategy to touring and there's strategy to record releases and strategy to um, Spotify, you know, like if the more you're on there, the more people will come on there, you know, and the more stuff you put out, the more playlists you make, the more they'll listen. But at the end of the day, like, I just kind of roll with it and, and do my I thing. really like those playlists that you put out. You did some oh, playlists, and I discovered a lot of new music through those playlists. Oh, cool. That's great. And uh, because I think you, you're pretty open towards yeah, multiple oh, types yeah, of yeah. music. Oh, yeah, I love music. Which is not normal in the punk scene. And well, I don't really... I, to me, punk is just a way of approaching um, life that, that, that fit when I was a teenager and... And still it comes back, you know, like I'm a punk rocker, I guess, at heart. You know, I, I find the world we live in to be f very, very flawed. And so I'm against the grain of a lot of it. You know, I think that so many things that we've been force fed are are wrong. And I think you should follow your heart and follow your instincts and be compassionate and all those things. And those are sort of punk rock ideals. But but as far as music goes, like I don't apply much of that. Mm. I, I don't I couldn't care yeah. less about who calls themselves punk. Um, it's not interesting to me. Yeah. You know, so much of that music's not interesting to me. Most of the best bands that call themselves punk have mixed another musical element into it. Um, you know, Rancid has ska, and um, you know, there's very few that are like bona fide or whatever, very purely punk that to me are that interesting. You know, The Clash was the earliest example of that, and they mixed all kinds of influences from all over the world in. So. That that's sort of my rule book, and the rest of it I couldn't care less about. I, mm. you know, if I like the song, I like the song. Yeah, I recently watched the TV show Billions. Oh yeah, and so the last episode of the last season, mm -hmm. in the final scene, yeah, they played your song Saboteurs. Yeah, yeah. So how did that? How did that happen? Uh, that was, you know, what's funny is we were just talking about the ills of social media, but this is a positive. I uh, saw Brian Koppelman, who writes and, and creates that show, and I'm a fan of his work. He made Rounders and all these other great movies and stuff. So I saw him tweet that his weekend playlist one weekend was Bob Dylan, Dave Haas, and somebody else. And I was like, oh, my God, nice. that's crazy. And I sent him a message. I said, hey, man, I didn't know you were a fan. I'm a fan of yours. I made a new record that hasn't even been announced yet. Do you want to hear it? He was like, yeah, of course, I'd love to hear it. So I sent it to him, and he said, oh, my God, I love this record, and I love Saboteurs. I think I'm going to rewrite the end of, oh, nice. of a Billions episode. Would you be down? And I was like, well, yeah, of course. <laughs> you know, I'm a, I'm a fan of the show. And, um, and that was that. He rewrote the end of it to include that and did a, a masterful job of using yeah. the lyric and the song to deliver what they were trying to deliver. And that was that, like it was something that I knew was going to happen. And, um, you know, the legal people worked it all out. And then we got to watch it, my wife and I, on the couch, you know, we got to watch it happen and broadcast, you know. And it was a thrill. It was like, um, you know, a, a really sweet thing to have happen for me and my brother who helps me write the song, you know, like it was more money than he had ever made making music. <laughs> so it was really cool. It was nice, like a, yeah. a wonderful um random occurrence yeah i don't know if i remember the number correctly but i think 
They offered the Dead Kennedys one million for a Levi's commercial to put Holidays in Cambodia in there. Oh, yeah. And Jello Biafra refused to do it. Mm -hmm. And so that song wasn't uh, on the Levi's commercial. So would you have turned down an offer like that? No. No, that's, I mean, that was a long time ago. And when, uh, you know, I mean, I don't, I don't know. I like Levi's. They're fine. I mean, I don't, I, that whole paradigm has shifted. No one bats an eyelash when your song gets used in a commercial now or a TV show. It's, It, I I mean I think that's uh, insane. But yeah. but I mean you know good on him if he maybe he has something against Levi's. I don't know. I don't, I'm not sure. I think it was just because it's a multi-billion corporation or something. So, but yeah, I, don't know. I, for example, because you mentioned the Clash, the way I discovered the Clash was through a Levi's commercial. Oh, interesting. So yeah, I think they had "Should I Stay or Should I Go" on a Levi's commercial. Yeah, I mean I think. All those things are your personal um, your preference or, or, or your own way of delivering your art. If maybe Jello Biafra didn't want a song, I have no idea, man. That that, that sounds foreign to me. And um, no, I would have taken the million dollars for sure. <laughs> <laughs> Is there a different pressure nowadays to put out a new record than back in the days when you weren't a full-time musician? Um. No, I think the pressure just comes internally. I think you want to, if you have been given the gift of having an audience that is willing to go with you on the journey you're taking them on, you want to keep delivering parts, chapters of the story. And that's where the pressure mostly comes from. I want to do the job well, and I want to make songs that are compelling, and I want to do it often. Um, and so that's maybe where most of the pressure comes from. I mean, there are certain economic problems, you know, not problems, but pressures where you're like, well, when you put out a record, more people come and more press happens and the tours do better and all that stuff. But I try to keep all, again, it's like so much of this is keeping your temple clean and, and maintaining um, an approach that you can be proud of doing this work. Mm -hmm. Cool. So you seem to be really, yeah, I don't know if relaxed is the right word, but doesn't seem that there's anything about this job as a musician that keeps you awake at night. Oh, it all does. But, but most of the job, uh, um, as a human being who does this job, uh, most of the mental gymnastics and, and the emotional gymnastics are wrestling all that down and not allowing that to become a monster that, does keep you up at night it, it has for sure and i'm sure it will as i go through being a father and raising my kids you know i don't want to have to get a job that pulls me away from this but i also am responsible for my children so uh, you know with my wife so uh, i you know it can keep you awake at night but you have to figure out what problems are real and what problems are imagined and what problems are serious and can be solved and which ones can't i can solve how much I work. I can work often. I can keep going on tour. I can't solve the streaming thing. So I try to deal with the ones I can and put the other ones into perspective and, and keep going. Why did you stop partying and drinking? Um, it's, there's a million reasons, but I think that I got a second chance at life. You know, I, I had a band that was pretty successful or getting to be successful 
I had a wife, I had a house, two houses, and a business. And I got to a certain point in life and none of that was together. And um, I was able to put together a solo career and meet another person that I love and cherish and want to spend my life with. And, um, and moved out to California and realized that if I kept going with alcohol and drugs that I very easily could light all of the new wonderful things that were going on in my, in my life on fire. And I felt like, all right, maybe I'll take a break and see what it's like. And started to realize things when I wasn't partying and stayed with it. Um, you know, I was, I'm, I was nearing 40, you know, I was starting to, things started to become more complicated than they needed to be. And it started to become more and more of a problem or it looked like more like a problem. And so I took a break that led into just a break, you know, and that's kind of still the way that I, it's a, it's an, it's another useful tool in maintaining sobriety is thinking like I'm taking a break. It's been almost five years, but you know, maybe I'll have a drink tomorrow and, but not tonight, you know, like right now I, you know, I want to, it's Berlin, you know, there's definitely <laughs> trouble to get into, but I just think, well, maybe tomorrow. And then that tomorrow just keeps getting pushed back. And yeah, that's a good trick. Yeah. It, it's a, it's a weird psychological thing that seems like it's worked. I don't know. Somehow it works. Mm. Yeah. It sounds to me like you really appreciate that you have the chance to do this job as a musician and you don't want to, I do appreciate that. Risk I appreciate that, right? my wife. I appreciate my children. Yeah. I appreciate my family, you know, my sisters and my brother and, my dad and stuff like I think that so many people go through life without all those things and and still manage to be great and so if you're given those gifts and people are willing to stick with you then I think that you know you would you don't want to um I don't know we've all met that that person and it's a they're a bummer to be around they're a bummer mm. to to spend time with and and I don't want to be that i want to just try to keep growing try to keep pushing and, and try to leave behind something that i can be proud of last time i saw you in berlin i think you were on stage with your brother of course mm -hmm. and your father as well so oh, yeah he came up for a couple i songs. thought that was really beautiful especially <laughs> yeah. since you lost your mom at a, such a young age yeah It's, he was able to come out on tour with us um in the spring tour we had a, our bus and our band and you know it just made sense that we were getting to a lot of places And that he had never been. And so I was, I was like, why don't you come on tour and we have an extra bunk for you and plenty of room. And yeah, it was really, really fun. It was really like a beautiful uh, experience for him and for us. We had a great time. It was great. cool. So last question. What's the hardest part about being a musician? Nowadays, it's being away from my family. Um, but I think the hardest part overall, and I think maybe it ties in in some, some way, is just maintaining your humanity in an industry that can be very, very confusing about how to do that because it commodifies something that's very human and then takes it, which can take it into a very inhuman way, you know? So, uh, but yeah, for me, it's just being away from the people that I love the most. I'm happy to have my brother with me. It's terrific. That takes a lot of the pressure off. But now with my kids and my wife, I'm just like, oh. So hopefully as they grow a little older, like start to show them Europe and bring them on the bus and stuff. So yeah, cool. Yeah. Thanks for the interview, man. Thanks Dave. Thanks for taking the time. You got really it. Nice. Thanks. Thanks.